Hello and welcome to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, cooperation, non-domination, mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This week I'm bringing in another Graham, Graham Robertson, who is an expert on Ukraine and Ukrainian identity, to talk about the complexities that are emerging in the ideas of nationality, identity, imperialism, the nation state, billionaires, oligarchs, all of the stuff that we mostly need to put aside as we support Ukraine in their conflict with Russia, but that also it will be good for those of us who are not experts on Ukraine to understand as we seek to understand this conflict and as we seek to make sense of the world that will exist whenever this conflict ends. I will say, uh, Graham and I just started chatting and then all of a sudden we were doing the interview without noticing it. So I hit record kind of late into the interview. So you're just sort of thrown into the middle. All you need to know is that we were talking about Ukrainian identity and the idea of the nation state and the rest of it, I think will go from there. Before we talk a little bit about the recent history of Ukraine, I can go ahead and say, and you can agree that, um, you know, I'm, I'm in touch with people in Ukraine and this kind of nuance is not happening now and indeed should not in this moment. But I am a big believer that you can, even in this moment of clarity, you can lay the groundwork for the problems that are that, that this moment of clarity is going to create you know it's going to create a problem if we fail to understand the complexities of ukraine and the ukrainian situation in 18 months and and it also creates my thing is grandma sometimes these moments of clarity create opportunities for the right wing um you know this I've been hearing rumors that I was dismissing about the, you know, the neo-Nazis in certain parts of Ukraine and their flags being flying against Russia and things like that. And I just ignored that because I assumed it wasn't true. And in only in the last 48 hours have I learned it is true. And now the New York Times is covering it. And it just makes you look really bad if you say, Putin says that there are Nazis in Ukraine but this is ridiculously untrue. Zelensky is Jewish. Putin is the real Nazi, which is, I think, true. And but then the but then the right winger can send you a picture of a neo-Nazi flag flag flying in Ukraine, and you just said that there's no truth to this at all, and no one could believe it, and there's no Nazis in Ukraine, and in fact there are. And then you look like an idiot, and then you you've lost clarity. In fact, through the lack of nuance right so i mean the nuance there is that yes there are nazis in ukraine there are nazis in norway there are nazis there's nazis ukraine. everywhere there's fucking nazis everywhere were the nazis in power in ukraine no right and 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 were they in were they in power before the russian invasion no were were there far right elements let's go to the, the euromaidan right? and there was a big and, and 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 quite uh toxic debate in academic circles um Within Ukraine itself, over the role of the far right in the in the Euromaidan, was this a, a fascist coup essentially, right? And 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 you know the truth lies uh, in the fact that um, there were far right representatives 
on the Maidan. They were principally uh, involved in the in the you know in the, in the, the violent conflict with the state. The state, you know, they were the ones that were fighting back when the Barkut came to repress the protesters. And a lot of those people were a you know, very key part of the assault on the on the, on the government buildings that led Yanukovych to flee. Right. So unquestionably, there was far right participation and significant far right participation in the fighting. Then we came to the elections afterwards, and you know the, those parties got less than two percent of the vote, um, and they did not—they disappeared effectively as a parliamentary force. Some people who had emerged from that movement hung around security circles in the government, but they were not in charge and they were not in control, right? And all of that became a very hard conversation to have, because as soon as you you acknowledge that their their existence. Of far right people, people then you know that somehow justifies this right wing argument that you know that 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 Ukraine is a is a fascist country and the fascists are in charge. And it, it's that leap that's absurd, right? It's utterly absurd to say I can send you pictures of neo Nazis in Ukraine. <laughs> There's video all over the internet of neo Nazis in Ukraine. There's even like British journalists undercover with the Nazis, right? <laughs> kind of thing. That's all there, but it's 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 irrelevant. You know, to the to the bigger picture, and it's making it's, it's the attempt to mainstream that extreme is is where the where the madness lies. Yeah, absolutely. And another way to put it, and you and I chatted about this a little bit before we started recording, is you know everyone is saying, oh, Ukraine is a country; it's a real country. Don't believe the lies that it's not a real country. Well, Ukraine is a is a made up, imaginary country, and in that respect, is like every other country. That is something about countries that. The standard uh, nation state or liberal or UN or political sovereignty idea that, that has emerged into the mainstream, at least in the 20th, if not going back to the 19th century, that countries are this real thing. Um, there's, a, there's a nation, which is an ethnicity, which is a group of people who are bonded together by history, language, religion, food. And then the state is just their sovereignty, the sovereignty of those people turned into a government. This is a total fiction. It's a total fiction in Ukraine. It's a total fiction everywhere else, though. It's a fiction in France and Germany and Argentina and wherever you find it. It's always a fiction. And then if you want to say, well, you know, Ukraine is disqualified as a country because there are fascists in the government. You only have to go back to uh, Charlottesville, the Unite the Right rally, the election of Donald Trump and say, well, if if countries are disqualified, from the support of the United States of America, well, then the United States of America fits in that group of countries because there are people who might qualify as Nazis in in our government and certainly were in our government in the Trump administration. What was that guy's name? Gorka, the guy who was a Sebastian Gorka, yeah, yeah, who was actually a Nazi, like actually was a neo-Nazi and in, was in the U.S. government. So the reason why I brought you in today. Um, Thank you so much for coming. Also, the, today is the day of the founding of the Paris Commune. It won't be airing on the founding of the Paris Commune, but congratulations, Commune yep. Day, everyone. <laughs> um, is because I wanted, uh, I I'm seeing the narrative in the same way that the narrative around, um, say, something like Black Lives Matter is an utterly simplistic narrative that is 100% true. I was seeing the same thing it's both 100% true and it's far too simplistic around Ukraine. So the sense of like, 
you know, for my part and for you part, uh, the the Grams are united on this one. The the war against um, Putin and his forces and his uh, invasion of Ukraine is 100% justified, is 100% good. There's no argument against it. What disturbed me is that people were making an argument against it in terms of things like national sovereignty and Ukraine is a country and all of these things that I think people are quite critical of when they're talking about the UK or when they're talking about America, but they were blindly accepting them in the case of Ukraine. And so I want to say you can be 100% against Putler, as the Ukrainian anarchist I'm in touch with is calling Putin, without having to accept a sort of 19th century definition of the nation state, which most of my friends are very skeptical of m most of the time. Um, so I brought you in, Graham Robertson, if, if you don't mind introducing yourself, and then we'll and then we'll just continue this conversation that we threw our listeners uh, into the middle of. Great. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here and, and, to, and to chat with you, Graham. Um, uh, I'm Graham Robertson. I'm the director of the Center for Slavic, Eurasian, and East European Studies at, at UNC Chapel Hill, um, uh, and I'm a political scientist. I've been working in Russia and Ukraine uh, and, and former Yugoslavia, but since since back in the in the late 1980s, uh, and, and, and focus these days very much on, on on Russia and Ukraine and questions of identity. Questions of identity. So we can um, let me just define the nation state very briefly for those of you who uh, are not political scientists or haven't studied political science. Just the idea behind the nation state. Uh, I've already alluded to this. Is the is the idea that there is a group of people that have something in common. This is the nation. Um, and then the government should be run by that group of people. That is the state. And the nation state originates as a liberal or even leftist project against imperialism. So when you think about the nation state in the 19th century, the idea is, hey, why should some rich guy who speaks German be in charge of these peasants in what is now Italy, just because his last name is Habsburg. So the nation state is an idea of resistance against imperialism. But at this point in the 21st century, I believe the tide has turned against the nation state in many ways, at least on the left and even in, in liberal circles, because the nation state seems to include some form of internal exclusion. So you get a sort of form of uh, internal imperialism, um, often against people who can, do, do not count as part of that nation, who are do not have the shared history identity. So black people in America, Jews everywhere besides Israel, et cetera, et cetera. These people should be denied full rights because they are not part of the people and they do not deserve uh, sovereignty. And it's in light of that, question and problem that I wanted to talk to you. This it, it really is a problem of identity and politics about what's happening in Ukraine. Sorry, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to any of that if oh, you, if you there's a, there's a, a lot there. I mean, I guess maybe is, is, is it useful to at this point to sort of talk about uh, the, the construction of contemporary Ukraine? Absolutely. Years, right? So since nations are made, um, uh, you get lucky when you're here and you can see it having been made in the past 30 years. So tell us about the making of Ukraine. 
Yeah, so you know, with, without going back into you know the, the story, usually begins in, in Kiev in, in in the 11th century and and all of that, and the, the kind of twos and fro's of the Russian Empire and uh, independent you know statelets that emerge and, and, and you know Cossack hitmenets and all of that stuff. Just starting at the at the end of the post-Soviet period, right? So the the, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, uh, as it was shaped, was um, a function covered the territory that it did as a function of Soviet conquest in the, at the end of the Second World War, and then internal decisions in the 1960s um, under Khrushchev as to which part of which territories would be in Ukraine and which part would be which would be in Russia. And this is essentially Crimea. And so when Ukraine becomes independent in in 1990, at the end of 1991, it has it it, it, it covers a, a a range of different territories and peoples. There are majority Ukrainian-speaking parts. There are majority Russian-speaking parts. There are parts with large Russian ethnicity um, uh, concentrations, such as Crimea. But there's also Tatars uh, who make up a pretty significant population in Crimea. So there's a lot of variety. One thing that they are pretty much all agreed on at the is is in the referendum to uh, on independence at the end of the Soviet period was that every region voted majority for independence from the USSR. And then what happens over time is you have essentially you know an economic crisis that's much worse and much deeper uh, in Ukraine than in even than in Russia where it was really pretty pretty terrible. Um, and Ukraine starts to become politically divided between East and West, roughly, the North and South. But you can carve it in different ways, but you get a kind of more pro-Russia uh, East and, um, and, and, and Crimea and a, and, a, and a more kind of um, anti-Russian, really, rather than pro-Western um, part of Ukraine in the, in the West. And if you look at Ukrainian elections all the way through up until the election of Zelensky, uh, in 2017, you see the sharp divide between in the election electoral map, um, and that's sort of the reality of Ukrainian statehood up until uh, the Orange Revolution of 2003 and the Euromaidan in, 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 in 2013-2014. These are uh, attempts to uh, rebel against the extraordinarily corrupt. Uh, and poor and weak nature of the Ukrainian state, which essentially in the post-Soviet years gets cannibalized by oligarchs um, who control the, the main assets and, and, and the wealth in the country. Um, the Ukrainian state gets kind of hollowed out and, and gets basically largely privatized by different groups of oligarchs, the same way as it did in Russia um, around the same time. I, um, I, I just need to point out again, also in America. I mean, I'm in contact with a guy uh, in Ukraine, and he says, and this is true, uh, this neoliberal oligarchization of Ukraine is horrible. It's worse than it is in Russia, and it's much worse in Russia than it is in a place like London. But the oligarchization, I need to stop saying that, is, is pretty bad in London. As we can see now, that now that the, the tide has turned against not oligarchs in general, but Russian oligarchs, London is in some ways being, ha, has been run for the benefit of Russian oligarchs. So this is, I don't want to suggest that this is a Ukrainian problem. It, it, my understanding is it could be worse in Ukraine than anywhere else in the entire world. But it's, it's pretty bad in London, and it's also pretty bad in New York City. 
Well, then in the United States, North Carolina, right, where, you know, you, and, and, and most of the states where uh, people buy legislation, right? They call it lobbying, they call it campaign contributions, but the effect, it, it, the, the difference is that it's legal, right? It's legal. <laughs> so it's not corruption because it's legal. Yeah, my, 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 my comrade in uh, Ukraine was saying, oh, you have to pay this huge bribe to defend a PhD dissertation. And my response was, well, yeah, there's no bribes here in America, but you do have to be wealthy to defend a PhD dissertation or go into tons, go into tons of debt. And in some ways the, the legality of it uh, doesn't make it better. It makes it, it makes it worse. Oh, this is all, this is all above board. Um, oh, well, you have an undemocratically elected president uh, but that's fine because he won the electoral college and that's just, you know, how the system works. It's undemocratic, but it's the system. So you just have to accept it and it's all legal and above board. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, 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 the legality is, is always, it's always sort of amused me. Um, well now, well now you're talking like an anarchist, right? Because this is because this is the idea. It's like, oh, well, corruption is bad unless it's legal. And then corruption is good because laws are good. Yeah, I mean, there, there is, I, 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 I think, you know, whether it's, you know, having good laws is, is, is important. <laughs> having laws that are bought by, by, you know, private interests is bad, right? Um, uh, you know, so it's, 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 there's lots of different ways to be bad. Um, yeah, and I would say, you know, I'm not against the idea of the idea of laws, um, although it's certainly, you know, some utopia who would want laws, but I'm against the idea that if you have laws, then, then things are good. <laughs> well, I'm not sure laws are necessary. That would be the anarchist position, but they're definitely not sufficient. You know, yeah. many countries have <laughs> many countries have legally guaranteed universal health care. That is a law. Very few countries that have that law actually have anything resembling universal health care. It's an, it's another form of this fiction. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I'm getting us uh, yeah. off of Ukraine and back to into anarchism. Um, so, so the, the Orange Revolution basically is, a, is, a, is an attempt by um, uh, a, a, a president to, to, to anoint his own successor, um, and a, a, a successor who represented particularly the city of, of, of Donetsk uh, in the east of Ukraine, and who was very much associated with um, mafia claims. In, in Donetsk and was resented by um, many politicians and, and ordinary people in, 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 in Ukraine as a sort of an annexation of Kiev by Donetsk. Um, and so you know, the Donetsk mafia takes over the whole country, right? And this was the objection to, 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 to Yanukovych's uh, you know, appointment or you know, fraudulent election in, in, in 2004. And so there's a big uprising against it. Long story short, Yanukovych gets uh, disbarred by the Supreme Court, and uh, and 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 Yushchenko becomes the the, the the president. He's probably the you know the rightfully elected one. Um, but not much happens, right? In terms of this is big civil society movement that had grown up around the Orange Revolution doesn't take power. What takes power is is another set of oligarchs. This time, you know, uh, Western Ukrainian oligarchs. Um, and under a kind of veneer of, of, of Ukrainian nationalism that the nation could produce. Um, he then loses an election 
to Yanukovych. So Yanukovych actually comes back and becomes president in a, in a, in a, in a relatively free and fair election. Uh, and then the next sort of cutting point is the, the Euromaidan revolution of 2013, um, when Yanukovych tries to, he's been trying to balance between Russia and the West for uh, the whole time. And, and then the, the contradictions of that, he gets overwhelmed by basically. And he backs out of a, of a, of a deal to set up to join the, the single market, or at least to begin the process of joining the European single market. Um, he backs off of that, and there are big protests against it. People see this in, in Kiev, it begins with intellectuals in Kiev, see this as a, as a, you know, a clear distinction, a clear choice for Russia over a Western path. There's a revolution. It's a long story. Revolutions are long stories, but long story short, was a revolution. Um, the Russians annex uh, the Crimean Peninsula, uh, and they support what are what are at least initially indigenous uprisings uh, in Donetsk and Lugansk. By indigenous, I don't mean you know the the real masses out on the streets fighting. I mean local gangsters uh, and business people probably funding the the the, the operations and, and and leading them. Um, and then you end up with this this, this territory uh, that's taken from Ukraine, which is Crimea, and then a territory which is contested in a, a war, a continuing war with Russia, um, that's that from you know from 2014 until until today. Um, the effect of this inside Ukraine is to really strengthen um, the civic identity in Ukraine. Before the political divide had been somewhere along the lines of uh, ethnicity and somewhat along the lines of language use. But after the Euromaidan revolution, it becomes much easier to be a you know pro-Ukraine, patriotic Ukrainian, and be a Russian speaker right? um, because there's kind of a rallying around this Ukrainian identity, um, and that's sort of been where, where we were uh, when 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 uh, when the presidential elections of, of, of 2017 come along, uh, and Zelensky becomes the first president. From who's, who's a Russian speaker, um, a native Russian speaker, um, to run for the presidency, but in a kind of pro-Ukrainian uh, platform, and against uh, kind of a much more exclusivist version of Ukrainian uh, identity represented by, by by Poroshenko, who is the, the defeated candidate, and so it becomes this idea of a civic identity, a civic Ukrainian identity, is is greatly strengthened, and actually really is sort of you might think of it as being born in the Maidan. In 2013, um, if it's not born there, it certainly grows there a lot um, and becomes pretty mainstream by the time the Russians invade um, last month. Okay, that's that's fantastic. So that's a level of of nuance that I didn't realize. So the suggestion is, you know, if we're looking for this moment when the fiction of Ukraine, the imaginary of Ukraine, becomes real. It's, it's in this sort of Benedict Anderson sense. It's the moment when it becomes believed by a, ma a mass of people. There's no, uh, the idea can be out there and it's it's the belief that creates a country, that creates a, a, a nation state. And so after all this time where the sort of the war was between one part of uh, Ukraine, which is sort of Western focused and another part of Ukraine, which is more, Russian focused and this divide happened regionally and ethnically in the Maidan, there's a sense that it's time to stop um, arguing about whether we are going to be, you know, 
divided or whether we're going to be a Russian country, but there's a sense that we can be, we can be a country, we can be a state, it can be sort of a state nation, as you described, although I don't think we recorded that part, which is where everyone can sign up to this Ukrainian identity and wave the flag without the connotations of language and ethnicity and the exclusiveness of a nation that I, that I talked about earlier. And this presumably, this is again where I, I need your expertise, looks like a pretty unalloyed good to Western liberals who do not think of themselves, or at least as of two months ago, did not think of themselves as this thing called the West, which was in a war with this thing called Russia, but thought of themselves in this sort of Fukuyama end of history. We have this lovely thing called liberal democracy and capitalism and it's good and everyone should want it. And this is a big victory because the Ukrainians left behind both, you know, uh, ethnic nationalism and Russian imperialism and are just going to join, quote, the free world. And that leads to all of the celebration of Zelensky now in the West. Does that does that ac accord with your sense of it? Yeah, more or less. I mean, what, what really happens is that, uh, and you put it really well, the Russian option dies. Russian behavior over the annexation of Crimea and the war in, in eastern Ukraine effectively kills off uh, the idea for, for, for the vast majority, not for everybody, obviously, you never, you know, there's no unanimity anywhere, right? But for the vast majority of people, it kills off any idea of, of there being a Russian united, uh, a Russian customs union, for example, right? If you ask people in surveys, do they prefer the EU or the Russian customs union? Up until the Maidan, people said, often said both, even though that's not actually legally possible. Um, or they preferred, you know, kind of one or the other, depending on where they live. After the the Maidan, there's a, there's a big switch. That, that whole Russian customs union idea is dead. People are still divided as to whether they want to join the EU or NATO. There's more support for NATO than the EU. There's division. Some of the more nationalist Ukrainians don't want a piece of those international organizations either. But the Russian option dies essentially. Um, and there becomes a much more you know, unified view that of, of, of Ukraine as a Western-facing country. Excellent. Um, and now we got to do a little uh, realpolitik, which if you, it, it just looks like real politic on on the page if you're reading it. But it's a German word. It essentially means foreign policy is not about ideals. Uh, it's not about values. It's about power and strategy. And this leads us to Putin's. Uh, decision, at least this is the standard decision, and again, I'll let my expert guest weigh in on this, the standard description of why Putin invades. So in the one sense, Putin invades to strengthen his power at home, which Professor Robertson uh, wrote an article about in the Washington Post, but he also invades because if the West doesn't see Ukraine joining the EU and the NATO as a blow in the war against Russian strategic power, the West sees it as the advancement of these good values that are good and should ideally take over the entire world, Putin very much at home and abroad has a narrative that he is defending the Russian empire, which is a recent invention, is 30 years old and is also a thousand years old, depending on how you want to count it, against the encroaching forces of the West. And if EU and NATO institutions are in Ukraine, that means that this encroaching counter empire, this US backed counter empire called the West 
is in striking distance of Moscow. And so Putin says, I cannot abide this. This is realpolitik. This is strategy, not ideals. And then he puts this ideological underpinning of like, oh, well, these people are actually Russian. That's why Crimea and Donbass, this takes us back to the idea of nationalism. These people do not belong to this Ukrainian state because they are, in fact, my people, or you could say our people, even though Putin, I think, does not distinguish between himself and the Russian empire. Yeah, that's, I mean, so that's a really, that's a really astute way to put it, I think. Essentially, you know, um, the, the, way I, the way I would put it is, is, is the expansion of NATO creates a security dilemma for Russia, right? And, you know, they're getting closer to, to Russia's borders. This weakens Russian security, clearly. We say, the U.S. says, oh, no, it doesn't because we have good intentions. We're not, we're not ever going to invade Russia. No Western country will ever invade Russia. Not like Napoleon did it and also Hitler and also tons of times. That is never going to happen. We're really nice now. And so you are the only bad actor here. So if there's missiles in Ukraine and you're upset about it, that's your fault. Yeah. So, so, so that's, that's entirely, you know, it, it's entirely reasonable to think that the Russians uh, and, and, you know, well, well beyond Putin in the, in the foreign policy establishment and the military establishment, you know, even amongst the, the, the broader citizenry, could interpret uh, NATO expansion as a security threat, because it was. The question is, 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 is this a reasonable action? Is the invasion of Ukraine a reasonable action in response to that security threat? Even if you take all morality out of it, it's not, because all that you've done is you've created a united Europe, you've created, you know, uh, a, a real uh, secu security threat perception of security threat on the other side, which will lead them to arm more, which will lead you to have to arm more. It's a classic security dilemma situation. Yeah, so you talked about this in your Washington Post article. It is very clear to us now, and honestly was, I think, clear to most of us before, that the, you know, Vladimir Putin saved, quote, the West as a, as a concept, as a military industrial force. The thing, uh, there were many things holding back the West from being this unified thing. There was, for one thing, the lack of the sense that either Russia or China were this existential threat that needed to be fought against. That has changed now. Russia seems like an existential threat. Just talk to any European country that is near Ukraine, wondering if they are next. Um, and then the other thing uh, was there was a lot of distrust of the United States um, going all the way back to, you know, neoconservatives uh, invading Iraq and Afghanistan. But certainly after Trump's election, there was this sense that the U.S. was no longer a trusted partner because either A, they really were the imperialists that Putin was calling them, and they're quite happy to uh, take imperialist actions in, in non-white countries that have lots of natural resources. And you can imagine them deciding that, that Russia fits that bill. I can't imagine that, but you can imagine a Russian deciding that. And the other thing is that, that America is just in decline. It's in decay. It's electing uh, TV hosts to be president and no serious country can have a TV personality as president. And America's done that a couple of times. Yeah, there's also, that's a Zelensky joke also. And so you just shouldn't sign up for Team West, Team USA, Team Liberal Democracy versus the Evil Empire. 
And the person who never signs this up, never signs up for this deal, is Angela Merkel, and she's from the eastern part of Germany. And that, you know, Germany is not going to put its money with Team Western military is gone now. And that seems like that must have been Putin's greatest fear is the US, Germany, and the rest of the West in their orbit. Um, I mean, I can imagine Japan starting to arm themselves not only against China, but also against Russia, which can't, you know, the Russians should have learned not to get into a war with Japan by now, I feel like. So we've been saying for a long time that, that you know, Putin's key goal is to divide the West, is to undermine, you know, unity in the United States, is to undermine the EU. And, and, and there's, there's a sort of gestalt moment that happens in 2008. 2007, when the Russian uh, foreign, foreign policy establishment has been pretty sanguine about the expansion of the EU, opposed to the expansion of NATO, but pretty sanguine about the EU. And then they realize that, wait a minute, the EU is not just an economic project. The EU is a political, cultural project. And we're going to be excluded from this political cultural project. Um, it, it's going to basically unite everybody else in a, in a single culture, cultural realm against our vision of, of the Russian cultural realm. Right? Um, and that's bad. We want, to, we want to keep it divided. It's funny that it took them so long to work it out because the Europeans have been saying that since the European Coal and Steel Community was founded in the 1950s, explicitly as a political project. Um, so the, but the Russians caught up to that really late. And so they start to realize this, and then they start to oppose uh, very bitterly any expansion of, 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 of the EU as well as, uh, as, well as of NATO. Um, and you know, that sort of uh, idea that, that breaking up the EU and undermining it, you know, paying for Brexit, as, they, as, as, as the Russians you know, made significant contributions to the Conservative Party uh, in the UK and, and, and to supporting Brexit. Um, we actually did an interview in, in, in the Putin versus the People book. We did an interview with uh, Alexander Dugan, who is this right-wing uh, fascist um, ideologue in, in, in Russia who had a certain amount of influence in the Russian government. My co-author, co Sam Green, did the interview, and it was in, in London, in the very fancy West London home of, of a British financier. Right. <laughs> there you go, precisely. Conducted, you know, Dugan wanted to speak in English, though he doesn't speak English all that well. The whole thing was was this microcosm of this idea that, that Russia was trying to undermine the EU. And what Putin has done is he has, you know, Ukraine, the EU is now like talking about admitting Ukraine, which would never have happened in my lifetime because the, the rules and the financial regulations and the economic rules. Would just make it very, very hard for Ukraine to adapt on that, even on a, even on a twenty-year time frame. And so, if that was really about, if that was what Putin was trying to do before, then he has, you know, failed ethically uh, in his foreign policy. And so, I've moved from being someone who tended to see Russian behavior through the lines of opposing NATO and the security dilemma and these sort of real politic factors. To thinking, well, either this was a dramatic intelligence failure, which is possible, but like an intelligence failure is so large that it would have taken you five minutes on the street in Kiev to have worked out who's going to resist. And if you couldn't make it, you could have worked it out online in ten. You know? 
Um, so I don't know that, that it's even possible that there was an intelligence failure of that scale. It, it, it's possible, but I, I find it hard to, hard to believe. In other words, so that so what's the other explanation? Well, the like, explanation is this really is an imperial project, um, and it's not about um, Russian security at all. It's about you know increasing the size and the reach of, of the Russian Empire, and that's not and a perspective really that I had you know I had entertained it, but I didn't I, I didn't you know really think it until 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 February. Yeah, I think I think that makes complete sense. I think it's you know. Um, this is an this is an old old truism, but R Russia is not an empire without Ukraine. Um, because I mean, for there's lots of reasons, but the food the food comes from Ukraine, and at some point, uh, I'm going to cover Nestor Machno on on this show. So for those of you who who do not know, um, anarchism has has broken out uh, a few times in the past couple hundred years and it's been <laughs> more or less successful Machno was very successful militarily and then it usually gets written out of the history books for example there was just an article about the history of ukraine in the new york review of books and it talks about the war between the white russians the red russians and the ukrainians and it did not say, and it, it named generals in every single group except for the Ukrainians. And with my, you know, anarchist conspiracy hat on, it says, well, actually, there's, you know, the Ukrainians were were united under a flag, and it was a it was a black flag. They certainly weren't completely united, but neither were the, the whites or the reds weren't united either. But they had a very effective military, and they fought very well, and they were and they were anarchists, and that simply could not stand. For the Soviets, there could not be a USSR with a friendly anarchist Ukraine. And I think the anarchist Ukraine would have been friendly with the USSR. There had to be a, a Soviet empire with Ukraine run out of the Kremlin, or there was no Soviet empire. So Makhno had to go, and as is often the case, the anarchists fight the fascists and then the reds sweep in and defeat the anarchists after both sides are exhausted. That's what happens in, uh, that's what happens in the Spanish civil war. And that's what happens in Makhno's Ukraine. Also the reds wait until both of the other sides are, are divided. And then they, and then they send the, the tanks in. So there's my, there's my bit of anarchist history and propaganda yeah, related to that. My homage to Catalonia, George Orwell's book about the Spanish civil war. And yes. All the time you were talking, that's what I was thinking about. It's 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 you know I'm certainly not uh, I certainly do not know the Machno story as well as the story of the Spanish Civil War, but it seems to have roughly the same the same arc. Yeah, except that the 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 fascists win in Spain instead of instead of the Reds. Um, so when you're thinking about Russian Empire, and this is why I brought up Napoleon, I saw a tweet recently that some Russia expert had said, you know, this is just how Russia is. It always has an autocrat and it always wants to have an empire. I just sort of made that case. But I do want to make the opposite case, which is dating back at least to the late 18th century, and the Napoleonic Wars, but probably going much farther back. There is another reading of this, which is Russia is always trying to be some sort of a state. And much like Afghanistan, it is always being invaded 
and destroyed both from the east historically from the east but over the past 200 years from the west how many times has the wet the, the quote west if you think of it as a unified thing which i often do not but as russians can it doesn't matter if it's napoleon or hitler either way it's that western thing invading russia and if you do not build an empire you are just Afghanistan, a place that can never have a state and can never have even anything resembling sovereignty. So I did want to get that that sort of realpolitik interpretation in front of the listeners. So if you think, okay, this is an imperial project, Graham, which you're suggesting it is, it's an imperial project that's designed to not become Afghanistan. And no one wants to be uh, Afghanistan. That is a very reasonable position. Whether or not that's a true fear in 2022, I have no idea. I'm not that well informed, but it's a it's a fear based in history and legitimate. So I would I would I would put a slightly different spin on it because I I, I don't think that you know the invasion of Ukraine is in any way an existential question for, for, for Russia. I think um it's, okay but I, I want to hear this answer but first is it reasonable to say that Putin could consider it an existential question for Russia, even though that's not right? You know, if, if, if fortunately, we don't live in the four inches between Vladimir Putin's ears, because you know, <laughs> what goes on in there, you know, is scary and, and, and hard, to, hard, to, hard to know. Um, what he thinks, I don't know. But, but it's, there's not a rational story that, that 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 paints this as an existential threat Good. Putin has created an existential threat <laughs> by doing it right? an existential threat to him personally um you know it's not inconceivable that he finishes this whole thing hanging from a lamppost um, um it's unlikely but it's possible and it wasn't really possible before um the the way i would put it is that there are this idea, this historical determinism that Russia is, was an empire, is an empire, will always be an empire, you know, uh, is an autocracy, was an autocracy, will always be an autocracy. Everywhere was an autocracy <laughs> right, until the French Revolution. And then France went backwards and forwards. Power is contested. And, and the, the, whatever ideas or set of institutions wins, um, it's not, that's not the only possible set of institutions. Russia has a long-standing democratic tradition too, going back to, to the city-state of Novgorod uh, in, the, in the late Middle Ages. Um, it has you know, a, a very kind of international cosmopolitan tradition in, in St. Petersburg uh, and also in, the, in, in parts of the Russian intelligentsia. Um, there are lots of different political forces that came into play in the 1990s. Um, it so happened that really reactionary forces out of the KGB won, right? And it may be that that's not by chance, right? They're, they're, they were stronger for, for structural reasons. They're not stronger because Russia was always an autocracy. Putin didn't win. Yeltsin didn't appoint Putin to the next president because Peter the Great was a dictator. <laughs> Good point. He appointed him because he was there for the guys with the guns who could protect him. Um, and then, you know, then they became very skilled at taking over television and dominating the narrative. In other words, all of this is contingent. It's politics. Uh, and so the division, the decision to invade Ukraine is also politics. It's not driven by any inevitability of history. 
um, or any necessity for the Russian state to to survive. In order to survive, it has to eat its neighbors. That's just not true. Russia's always been relatively poor compared to its neighbors. They're going going way, way back, right? It's off the major trade routes. Its, it's rivers flow to the north, to the Arctic Ocean, right, to, uh, into the ice. So it's been pretty useless as a, as a, as a part of the global trading system. Um, and as it was industrializing and trying to find its place in that trading system, we had the, this, you know, the, the Russian Revolution and, and the effects that happened after that. And so Russia's always been relatively poor compared to the countries that it competes with in the West and now, and now, and now with China too. Um, that's true and, and structurally it's important um, and it reflect and it, it doesn't inform you know Russian policymakers view on the world but it doesn't it's, it's a huge leap to go from there to Russia has to be an autocracy and it has to control Ukraine but what, yeah. I, what I find really, like, really sad and, and you know frustrating there are so many things to be sad about but one of the frustrating things about this current situation is those conservatives who Turn around and say, "See, told you Russia was evil. It still is evil. It's always it's evil. In, it's infuriating." They're the ones that look like they're right, right? Yeah. On a simplistic, superficial take on, on this thing, I used to joke. I, I have students come into my office every year uh, who want to do senior theses or master's theses, and one of the generic theses is, um, "You know, the Russians are evil. Let me write about why." Right? <laughs> this is an art and science. You know, going back to the Soviet period. So what? And sometimes it's about manipulating oil prices. Sometimes it's about Ukraine. Some, but it's always like the underlying premise is always: let me write a thesis about why the Russians are evil or how the Russians are evil. Um, and I just think that's a completely misconceived way of thinking about it. It's it's Russian politicians, the Russian government, the Russian state at particular times behaves in particular ways that are contingent and and are derived from the combination of circumstances and decisions. Putin is not Russia. Xi Jinping is not China. Boris Johnson is not the UK. And even, you know, Joe Biden is not America. And that's, that's actually, that goes back to why I wanted to reach out to you about this, because I was seeing people talk about Ukraine with a simplicity that they would be absolutely disgusted to hear their own countries. um, talked about that there's this thing that is good and it's called ukraine and it's fighting the evil empire and it's true <laughs> right now that yes, it that just is. happens to be true right now but some yeah. of these same people you know protested every military action the u.s uh has ever been against and you know i try and i've tried to remind people it hasn't gone very well that when they say that they want to cut the u.s military budget so that we can feed children back here they are talking about the missiles that are now flowing to Ukraine. And I'm watching a lot of mainstream uh, liberals and leftists become sort of neo-conservative inter-interventionists. And I'm trying to have that conversation while also saying, oh my God, yes, send all of the missiles to the Ukraine right now. But I do think you can turn the determinism around, which I want with you also, that this historical determinism is ridiculous and say, you know, as long as America is projecting itself as an empire, which it clearly still is, you can imagine Putin or someone like Putin, I too don't know what's going on in his head, thinking, oh, we do have to be an empire because the alternative is humiliations 
at the hands of these people who made movies about us like Red Dawn and, and have been vilifying us for as long as there has has been in America, probably, but certainly since the early the early 20th century. And if we don't understand that, we're not going to have a sense of what might be at stake in this war for Russia. So this, this is this kind of, uh, you know, I, I, for a talk that I gave recently, I made a chart and, and I, I grasped on, on the one hand approval of the United States and, and approval of, of Putin. Um, and they're basically, you know, as approval of the United States goes up, approval of Putin goes down. And as approval of the United States goes down, approval of Putin goes up, right? And these things drive each other, right? So the the, the big crisis in uh, the in 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 that that really turned that began turning Russians off against the United States was the bombing of uh, of uh, in Belgrade when, when during the, the war in Kosovo mm -hmm. we shelled uh, Belgrade, um, and that really that was the first kind of post-Soviet moment where, where where Russians in large numbers started to see the U.S. as an as an enemy. Um, and that also is this moment when, when you know, support for, for Putin um, and the support for nationalist forces in Russia goes up. So there's this inverse relationship between the, between the two, for sure. And it's, it happens in America, too, I think. I, I, I think also. That drives me nuts. Really, that, that, that's really this moment where people are talking about, you know, in terms of simplicity, and you know, this is the biggest war we've seen. This is the largest invasion that we've seen since the Second World War. But that's only true if you don't include the invasions that the United States has done, right? They're, they're not, those, are, those were not wars. Those were police actions, right? Or peacekeeping or, or, or whatever. Whatever you think of it, it was very big. Right? Um, Operation so, Enduring Freedom, Graham. How, how dare you call it a, a war? Was that even the right one? There were so, there were so many of these. And, but you know, it just gets lost all the time. And, and I mean, quite frankly, it, it sort of annoys me on a certain level, but it's also... Like if you want to, if media wants to dramatize, wants to see things that are that are technically not accurate, in a, in an attempt to dramatize the situation, and that will increase support for Ukraine, you know, coming in. So, <laughs> right at the, the at the at this moment, at the all-minded academic in me, <laughs> but let's <laughs> face the picture. We're in, right? Um, yeah, I, the the only uh, thing. I guess that I do really want to shout to the heavens right now is we we have in many ways an an oligarchic neoliberal society. It's not as bad. It's not as bad as in the Ukraine. And boy, am I tired of these payans to freedom um, and and liberty. And Ukraine wants to be just like us. There there is. It is clear to me that I guess I'll, we we can start wrapping up, and you can tell me what you think. This is a broader question, but what we call liberty and democratic liberalism. There's many other parts of the world that that just call it unfettered capitalism, and the story of most of the parts of the USSR and more broadly the Warsaw Pact is liber quote liberalism came, and the result was. At, economic devastation and oligarchy and eventually new forms of autocracy so it shouldn't it shouldn't surprise us that they have not necessarily been buying what what we are selling and i do mean literally selling and i do want to call attention to that as people are celebrating the west right now that a a more just and fair 
expansion of quote the West into places like Poland and Bulgaria and Romania and Kazakhstan, which I don't know that we even tried there, might have led to a totally different outcome. And we made the economic system that created oligarchs, not not Russians. So I, I think that's right. Right up until the very last part about whether we made it or they made it. Okay. And I, I, I think uh, the, the other mistake that we make in the West, and especially in the United States, is we vastly overestimate our control over events in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the story of Russian politics in the last 20 years, the United States and the Europeans are actors in that story, but they didn't write the script, right? And the script was, was, was written primarily in Russia by Russians. Uh, and in Ukraine by Ukrainians, um, both the good bits and the bad bits. Um, and you know we're definitely important players in that story, but but you know that Russia became you know a, an oligarchic gangster capitalism uh, you know based society. Undoubtedly true, uh, and we didn't do very much to to, to inhibit it, um, but. I'm not sure that we caused that either. Well, I guess let's just let's just say this. What and, nice. and you can see if this if this uh, refined version works better. You know, Western businesses and Western oil habits and Western forms of corporate structure at least added fuel to that fire. Does that sound right? Uh, bits of it, right? So okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is now we're getting really academic and kind of like yeah I know it's we're academics it's what we do makes an enormous difference that's 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 for sure um, you know there's a debate over whether you know uh, so you take Khodorkovsky right this is an interesting sort of discussion Khodorkovsky becomes the richest man in Russia and and you know the top dog of all the oligarchs um, you know through stealing and 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 through the uh, Monopolization through corrupt contracts with this, with the Russian state, um, and then he decides that he's going to turn his business around and make it into a normal "quote unquote" Western corporation with a board of directors and it floats on, 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 on the London Stock Exchange, and so everything will then be somehow you know correct and above board. Right? Clearly, that's not how most things. <laughs> corporations work that it's all correct above board, right? <laughs> but it would be corrupt in a different kind of a way than than its existing structure on the, in, in Russia. And that's one of the reasons why he was ousted. It's not the only reason why there's, there's a lot of them. But that there is that's one of the reasons. And so there's this interesting interaction between uh, Western laws and corporations and, and, and domestic politics. Where it's really important and where we contribute enormously to the oligarchization and uh, corruption uh, in all of those countries and lots of other countries around the world is by providing safe haven for capital and investments for gangsters like Putin and his and his cronies. There we, there we go. That is, that is London, where we... It's London, London. London in particular, but New York, Miami, uh, the south of France, Paris. I mean, there's Italy, all of these... Putin hench, hench, hench persons uh, who have property in, in Italy and have been complaining about it. We we facilitated that, encouraged that, and, and, and made that much easier. 
we and we benefited from it and by we i mean our own oligarchs not so much yeah. not so much us housing prices going up and so you can't afford yes exactly <laughs> friends like mine who live in london or work in london and live in you know 400 miles away uh because they can't afford somewhere closer that's you know that's how they benefited if you happen to own property in london before all this you benefited a lot yeah i mean this is there there is definitely an anarchist meme going around that says you know so now that we have decided that the government can just take yachts and houses and companies away from billionaires. Do we really have to only take it away from billionaires associated with Putin? Or can we just go ahead and grab all of the mansions and all of the yachts? Is there is there any reason not to? And in that in that sense, uh, in that sense, I am not on Team West because Team West is very clear. The idea is no, no, no. These are bad oligarchs, and they do not deserve to have yachts. But, uh, and it is true, as we keep saying, and this will be pretty much the last thing I will say, and then I'll give you the last word also. This is different. This is worse. 100% team Ukraine right now. And, you know, supporting Putin is much worse than donating to Donald Trump or Boris Johnson. But I will say in the era of this, if we, if people get a taste for seizing oligarchic properties, I, I would not object. I would not object to that. So, I, I, you know, this—if this was to lead to a serious, you know, appraisal in 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 London and in Washington of you know money laundering and you know hiding ill-gotten gains, that would be a good thing. I would also be very surprised. <laughs> yes, me. Yes, me too. Um, but I think I think you're absolutely right. The bottom line here, and 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 you know, the what I've been trying to communicate when I've been talking with people. Um, is that especially people on the left, right, who get a little bit hung up on on you know the, the idea that that Russia somehow represents an alternative and therefore that alternative must be good, right? Russia represents an alternative, but it's really terrible as incarnated by by hardline conservatives and and, and nationalists, imperialists like Putin. And we, you can be for Ukraine. Uh, and still be critical of, 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 of the United States. You can be for Ukraine and be very critical of, of, of Russia. These things are not mutually exclusive. There are lots of nuances and details in Ukrainian politics about which we should and will, I hope, talk. Um, this is probably not the time. Right now we have to try and save Ukraine or do what we can to help the Ukrainians save themselves. Um, and we'll kind of share those details later. Um, but but it is it's it's important not to be blinded by by the by the simplicity that you know we found. Yeah, it's 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 tricky, and um, you know, I cannot tell you how critical I was of the uh, leftists who embraced Hugo Chavez um, right. during the Bush administration. Um, I you know, uh, Putin is not Bush; he's much worse. Zelensky is not Chavez. He's much, much better in that respect. The simplicity is in is in full effect. And, you know, this kind of thing that I wouldn't normally say, but by all means, make more missiles and and send them to Ukraine. And even as I say that, I, you know, I cringe a, a little bit. Uh, I had my gestation director on the show and I still 